This is Jack Beatson from Foreign Hands, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with a brand new episode. And I am very happy to be home right now. I was just in St. Louis for work. It was a hard day. I had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning for a 7 a.m. site visit. I forgot there was a 5 o'clock in the morning. I haven't been up that early in a long time. I haven't traveled in a long time. But the trip went great. It's great to be back. It's great to be home recording. And listen, I have a complaint about travel. And I know TSA security is a miserable job. I know, believe me. But I can't stand when the agents yell at everybody in line as if they're at the airport every day and are supposed to know exactly what to do. Every airport has different rules. Take your computer out of the bag. Leave it in the bag. Take your shoes off. Leave them on. Put the bag in the bin. Don't take the bag out of the bin. It's always different. And sometimes you just get a really nasty agent who's yelling at everybody in a really sarcastic voice like, for the last time, I told you, take your stuff out of the bag. Put it in a bin. I hate that. I hate that. You know, I flew twice my entire life before I got my job now where I travel a lot. I used to travel a lot more, not as much now, but I flew twice. I don't know what the rules are. I grew up lower middle class. You think I'm on flights every day, every week? You think I know exactly what to do? Take it easy on the people, okay? It's probably their first time flying or their first time flying in a long time. All right. So I've got that out of the way, but listen, we've got a great, great show for you. Rob Pennington of Endpoint, By the Grace of God, Black Cross, and his new band, Jupiter Hearts, and we cover it all. We cover it all. His entry into the scene, touring the world, getting a PhD. The man has a PhD. Can you believe that? I can believe it because I talked to him about it. It's a great conversation. He's made a lot of great music, and that's coming up momentarily. But first, here's how you can support me, the new scene. Five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. We haven't gotten any in a while. I'm still waiting for review 108. So leave five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you write a nice review, I'll read it on the air. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Check out our YouTube channels. And we have shirts for sale at Deathwish Inc. Go pick one up. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Iodine has just published The Coldest Winter, an indie emo holiday-themed playlist. You're going to want this one. You know, Christmas is coming up this week. Maybe we're tired of Christmas music. We've got a lot of great bands on here. Piebald, Phoebe Bridgers, Mineral, Bright Eyes, Jimmy Eat World, you name it. Everybody's on this thing. It's a great playlist for your holiday party or for just sitting around and listening to music. Check it out. 
Okay, so music recommendations. I've got some good ones for you this week. Number one, One Step Closer. They've got a new song out called Dark Blue. This is one of the best songs I've heard from the band. They are really perfecting this melodic hardcore thing that they're doing. It's the best song I've heard from them since I think the first time I heard the debut EP, From Me to You. The first song on that, I'll never forget hearing that for the first time. It was like, boom, yes, these kids mean business. But check out Dark Blue. Also, I am personally recommending Soul Blind. The record is called Feel It All Around. Imagine hardcore kids playing alternative music. And that's one of my favorite genres right now. Post-hardcore is back, baby, in a big way. And these guys are doing it very well. Listen to the record. I'll add a song to our new scene 2022 Spotify playlist. I've got every guest we've had for the whole year and other random stuff that I listen to and like. Go search that out. It's got a white cover on Spotify. So there you go. There's some new music to listen to. Make sure you check back in with me in segment three. I'll talk about how I'm doing. I'll talk about more of the trip. We'll catch up. I'll bid everyone a happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year before we say goodbye to 2022. But right now, we are going to speak to Rob Pennington. Enjoy. We are here now with Rob Pennington. Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, Rob, it's great to have you here. And look, you've done a lot in music. We've got Endpoint. We've got By the Grace of God. We've got your new band, Jupiter Hearts. I looked at your email signature earlier and saw that you have a PhD. You've obviously accomplished a lot, and we're going to cover all of that. But Rob, first, let me ask you, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing fantastic. I just got out of a, a meeting with a PhD student in terms of this, uh, around designing a study that she's implementing. And so it's been a good day. That's awesome. And uh, we were talking a little bit before I hit record. You're based in Charlotte, North Carolina now, yes? I am. I, I still call Louisville my home, but about five years ago, I moved here to join the faculty at UNC Charlotte. So yeah, it's been great. Oh, so you're working at the college. Yeah, uh-huh. they have a really great um, program in severe disabilities where most of my work has been autism and folks with intellectual disability. And so 
about five years ago, I was at the University of Louisville uh, for about 10 years. And, uh, um, you know, things were wonderful there. It's a great place. But the, this really great job here came up. It's a little bit more of a kind of a has a more intensive research focus. And, uh, um, and so I ended up over here. Incredible. How I mean, Louisville to Charlotte is a pretty big move. How did you hear about the job? How did you decide to make this move? Oh man, it was a. Uh, I got a letter. So the the, the position is it's it's called like an endowed chair position. So basically, essentially, it gets a little extra perks, like some research funds and um, some more time to do research. And so they sent out some letters. Uh, their current endowed chair was retiring, so they sent out some letters to folks that they thought uh, might be a good fit for their program or that they were interested in their work. And so, uh, I got one of those letters and then I've been, again, things, <laughs> I always learn one thing. If you want to grow, right, you got to change your environment. And so things again, have been really great at the university of Louisville. I love my colleagues, but there was a part of me that's like, well, I probably have to work 20 more years. You know, should I do something different or in a different context, to, you know, continue to grow. And, uh, yeah, so I, I applied, I, they inv- I got surprised when they invited me in for a, a, a in-person interview and then I got the job and it was weird, you know, Louis- so you're right. It's about seven hours difference drive. You know, what was really different about that is, you know, I was kind of really dug in in Louisville. I had this long history of playing music there. I knew, I knew lots of folks in the States. I was a martial arts instructor. I just had like all these circles of friends there. Uh, and so it was a really, it was a weird jump, a real strange uh, transition. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty big move. And I respect it because I'm 40 years old now. I've been in Brooklyn for the past 10 years. I've worked for the same company since 2008. So to transition out of that into a new city, into a new role and essentially start over. I mean, it's a it's a pretty big move. Yeah, it was it was it was a little scary. And and again, the the job is amazing, but I do miss you know I do miss my friends and the people that you know. It's, it's really hard to get back people that you you know spent thirty decades knowing and hanging out with. Not thirty decades, excuse me, three decades get knowing and uh, spending time with and learning to love. And so you know, think, think we have technology now. We go back to visit often, and so so that, so that's good but but it was a really great kind of job move to move i've learned a lot made new friends and um yeah it's been great when you get to charlotte how do you make new friends your your new band jupiter hearts is based there right yeah yeah so what do you what do you do like how, like uh when i moved to new york city i still drank and well i partied way too much so i would just go to bars and gigs and I would be out of control and I would meet random people. I don't do any of that anymore. I'm a straight edge by necessity, I like to say. Um, So it would have to be some organized event that I met people through. I take a class or I meet friends of friends or I get invited to a party, something like that. Rob, how do you meet people in a new city? How do you get set up? Man, I don't know. I have no fucking fucking idea. Like the the, the I can tell you that we have a very small circle and like I moved here, I had just gotten a big grant. And so I was running all the time trying that first year, trying to get that managed and implemented. And then, um, and then pandemic happened. So it was just like, uh, you know, <laughs> it was really tough. And so my department, so the people in my department are, are, are awesome. My department chair, uh, is fantastic. Uh, I used to play in bands in Michigan and then, so he was playing in a cover band and I just said, Hey, do you play, uh, you know, do you play anything else? And he was like, yeah, I, I, I can. I was like, you want to get together and play music? He's like, sure. 
And so he, I mean, he, he could write great songs. And so then we had to find other members to play. And so at one point, a friend of ours knew this guy named Tim Kriependorf, who actually saw Endpoint playing like 1992 in Germany. He's from Germany and he, he got married here and, and somehow ended up in Charlotte and he played bass. And then uh, my wife was playing my playing drums. We had played in bands before. And then uh, she, she had some health complications and, and couldn't do it. And so uh, there's a drummer of a, a great local record store here called Lunchbox. And so he owns it. Uh, not the drummer of the record store, but he's the owner of the record store. And so that, and then a few other folks uh, that I've met through them. Yeah, that's kind of my small circle of, of friends here. So yeah, I still don't know how, how how to do it outside of having a mission to complete or a job. You know, we need a band. Let's put this thing together. Uh, I'm you know, completely socially awkward and I'm you know 51 years old. So I'm not hanging out at bars much anymore. So I don't know. Yeah, you know what, Rob? That speaks to me. I, I'm i awkward when it comes to just talking to people or like, oh, do you want to just go sit at a coffee shop and have a coffee and talk? I, I have to build up to that. But if it's like, oh, we're going to start a band, I, I could meet up with you right now and start the band. No problem. Like if there's a project involved, that's what I love to do. I can do it. That's what I like. Yeah. Well, you're not as vulnerable. There's, there's like a safe context. You know, like your experience, you know the ropes. And so basically your conversations, your relationship can kind of build a, uh, around those that framework that, that you're already comfortable with. Yes, the boundaries are the band. And it, uh, yeah. we stay within those boundaries, we're okay, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, take us back a bit. I'm interested about you and your relationship with music. I always like to hear about how people discovered punk rock, hardcore, uh, whatever, whatever the underground music thing is. Talk about your experience with that. When did you get grabbed by it? What bands did you see? Tell us about it. I guess my early experience, my, I guess my first love of music, I guess. My dad played guitar, uh, like country, like playing the Ventures, so like surf rock, and he would kind of play around. Um, I should. He tried to teach me guitar, and I was like any sort of angry young kid. I was like, fuck you, dad. I'm not going to learn guitar. Now as an old guy, I'm like, damn it, I wish I knew how to play guitar. Uh, yeah, that's like, <laughs> I feel like that's something... Every kid would dream of, like, my dad wants me to play guitar and, you know, we're learning together, that type of thing. Yeah, but, you know, it was like, I don't know. I had a lot of angst. Uh, my yeah. parents my parents were awesome. There were a lot of con- complex variables that were happening. So it's like, this is the last thing I wanted to do. My dad uh, wasn't the most patient person. And so, you know, it was just an- another source of contention when I'd sit down and try to learn from him. Uh as I've gotten older now, he shows me things on guitar and I'm like, yeah, I mean, he plays all the time still. He's like in the seventies, he plays like, you know, little community things and little bars once in a while and churches and all sorts of stuff. He lives out in the country and plays kind of like country music. And so, uh, um, that's, that's pretty awesome. But anyway, so he, um, so I listen to music and, and I always loved music. And as, uh, I guess my freak flag when I was in middle school was kind of like heavy metal. Like I really loved, uh, solo Ozzy before I even knew about Black Sabbath and uh I still to this day buy all this all this even his terrible records. Uh, <laughs> but you know it really wasn't I had a, a neighbor who was a paper boy and uh he was further along, a couple years older into punk rock. And so he, you know, would kind of uh mentored me. Like he was an older dude that did a, a paper route and so he paid me to help him on the weekends. And so we'd talk about music and then Myself, I started, you know, hanging out with kids that were listening to different types of music. So, 
some of the kids in middle school were listening to kind of new age music. And then I remember a kid gave me a cassette tape that had on one side damage and the other side group sex. And, uh, and then I was just kind of in, right. Everything I could get my hands on, like most of this is go to the record store and like, Oh, what's this? And, and so uh, that was kind of my escape. I remember even going on trips with my family, just having that old, old school, uh, sports Sony Walkman as waterproof and bright yellow and had up would just sit in the back seat and just listen to music all the time. I, I, I was a kid that's kind of bullied a lot. Like, I don't know, a lot of kid, people that find themselves in punk, uh, felt they didn't they didn't fit it in other places and um this is my community you know i just started started skateboarding i did all the things that you're kind of supposed to do sucked at skateboarding so then i thought i could maybe play in a band and then was in a band called society stricken and then a band called fist and then uh was in a band called food fight we actually got to play a, a show with a uh, soul side in the late 80s which is really awesome we got to open that show and then uh and then i i and then I met Duncan Barlow, who became one of my you know best lifelong friends, and and that's when Death Watch, which merged into Endpoint, kind of came about, you know. And he's been kind of my was my ride along for many not ride along maybe that's his ride along I don't know he he was the one <laughs> he, could, he could write all the songs I could just uh, write lyrics and uh, yell about stuff. Um, but we became thick and 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 we're bands together for decades i mean we still don't say that by the grace of god ever broke up we still play shows every now and then and scheme on, on you know how we can do something else in the future to spend time together and play music um but yeah that's kind of how i came into it like i uh, there again there was a lot of uh angst in my life trying to figure out where i fit in and for and punk rock spoke to me like there was a great already a Louisville scene at that time. There was bands like Solution Unknown and Malignant Growth, and and there in that mid eighties there was you know Slint and lots of other bands that were uh, playing, and um, and so it was just a really great time to be in Louisville and and start playing music. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, myself included. A lot of people get into hardcore because they don't find a place anywhere else. I was bullied. I didn't have a true sense of community. And then when I discovered these friends and these shows and everything, I was like, this is it. This is, you know, I love music. I see my friends playing music. I want to try to play music. This is where I belong. Yeah. You know, it was, a, it was, I don't have any brothers and sisters. So those fr- those friends are still lifelong friends. And, you know, and they, I, I consider them my family. And then uh, I'm a different person because of that. You know, my experiences that my parents would have offered me may have shaped me into a different person. So, you know, I was able to escape religion through hardcore. I was able to learn, uh, you know, my education, social justice started in hardcore. I've been a vegan for over 30 something years. Um, you know, all that is because of my experiences, you know, playing punk rock hardcore music and, and more importantly that community but i guess playing gave me access to that community yeah that's another thing i love about it is before getting into hardcore and the scene all that stuff back in the day i didn't even know what veganism was i don't know if i even thought about vegetarianism or thought of, or knew what that was and just uh the social values and everything associated with it i learned all that from hardcore no absolutely and I, I certainly have deepened my understanding, you know, over the years, but it really wasn't, you know, you have to have a, a community that, you know, basically a feedback loop, you know, that, that, that reinforces those values in you. And so, yeah, it was good. It was a really great, 
uh, fervent time in my life and uh, where, you know, things were coming together. And I'm glad those pieces stuck with me, you know, and it's just because again, I was, ex- <laughs> a lot of, I was able to, uh, spend time with a lot of people smarter than I was that really uh, <laughs> carried me along. I really appreciate those folks. That's how you learn, right? That's right. Absolutely. So talk about Endpoint. Is this when you really started getting out there in the world and touring and playing a lot of shows? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess we played, we were Death Watch first and that was like winter of 87. And then right after that, we had a change lineup. We were really interested into you know, we started getting interested in straight edge and things like that. And so we had to come up with a cool name. Uh, and then, so I think Duncan was actually looking at his textbook, his geometry textbook and said endpoint. And then I came up with this little thing about what an endpoint was. It was on the back of one of our t-shirts and then, uh, and there it was. And yeah, and through those experiences, you know, we, we grew, as a, we grew as a part of this really amazing Louisville scene and, and people from this area kind of know, like even people out of town, like they'd go through and they're like, man, you got to put that weird city in Kentucky. Kids are crazy there. Cause there would, <laughs> we'd, we'd play shows. It'd be six, 600, a thousand people. And it was just, it, it was amazing time to be exactly the age that I was to have those experiences in that big community. And it gave us a lot of confidence to go out and do other things. So again, we started playing shows East coast and then ultimately West coast. And then, um, and through that, that kind of shaped us, you know, again, taught us a little bit about the world. It took us to Europe, which none of us came from uh, families that could have afforded to ever vacation in Europe or anything. And so we were able to go over there and see other parts of the world. And then, you know, it taught us a little bit about the ch- some of the challenges in being in a band with people. And also it taught us a little bit about the business side of it. You know, it taught us about how to, I don't know, it, it was basically our training wheels for everything else we did in, in our music careers, I think. Yeah. yeah. How old are you when you're doing all that touring? West Coast, East Coast, Europe? Are you in high school or just out of high school? Just out of high school. So I was 18 to 22, or about those years, maybe 23. And then, um, yeah, I think my senior year in high school, we went on our first tour. It's really, which a failed tour. Lots of shows fell through, just a couple of shows. And Duncan's dad actually went with us because my parents were too uptight about me being in high school and still going to play, you know, going out of town to play some punk rock shows. Yeah, I'm curious about your parents' reaction to this. I mean, you're you're going to Europe to perform with your band. Are they freaking out? What do they think of this whole thing? You know, my parents, um, I, they weren't necessarily supportive, but they were open to it. You know, like my dad just was kind of uh, did his own thing. So he would, you know, gripe about a little bit and didn't really understand. I remember being like in high school and uh, and I had somehow met Ray Capo and the Krishna guys. And I remember uh, he's out mowing the lawn and a van full of Krishnas pulls up in front of the house. And I'm like, see you later, dad. And I jump in a van full of Krishna, Krishnas, you know, and they're like Baptist. And it was, a, <laughs> you know, it's just like, what? You know, so there were lots of arguments and. But, you know, I was a good kid and I, you know, and I, I don't know. They, he probably thought you joined a cult or something. Oh, he totally did. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it just, uh, uh, they somehow, they were so busy. My mom worked really hard all the time. And so, you know, it just happened. You know, I don't think they could hold me back to it, but I think they also trusted that I wasn't going to do anything too crazy. And that I was, you know, I was a pretty, like I said, I was pretty good in terms of the way I treated people and was pretty responsible. I worked all the time, went to school, did all those things. And so, yeah, it was, I don't know if they had much of a say in it. Yeah. I mean, 
I think that's good. They don't necessarily have to support you, but if they're just like, hey, you're doing your thing, uh, you're not strung out on drugs, fine. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah, my mom was cool. She would have like people, my dad would go out of town fishing or something, and my mom would like, you know, I'd have people over and, and she was happy I was there, you know, so she would let, you know, these kids with mohawks or some kids smoking in the basement or whatever. Like she would let, you know, she would, she would kind of welcome people hanging out at my house. And that for a while, that was a regular, I remember, remember that movie, I don't know, you, you're 10 years younger, but the one crazy summer. With Bob, oh yeah. Bobcat Goldwyn. We had like one cassette of that. And like every weekend people would come over like, what do you got? I got one crazy summer. We watched that thing again. And, <laughs> Had something else, a CD, uh, something called Moron Movies that you could uh, rant, which is these like one, like 30 second to a minute clips of just stupid stuff. Like, oh, like I've that. seen it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's more than one volume of it, actually. <laughs> Probably. So, yeah. <laughs> one Crazy Summer is just an ultimate classic. Whenever that would come on HBO, my brothers and I would just be glued to it, or I would at least. I love that movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, then there's a there's the skiing one too better off dead you can't go wrong with those you just can't no definitely classics for sure talk about the scene and shows at that time yeah and endpoint and just you know how endpoint fits into all that who were the big bands of the time who were you touring with like what are the shows like i'm curious so in louisville or just in general at the the national scene in general yeah yeah I thought it was a really good time for us. Those, those kind of around 92 or so, 92, 93. Um, we had already, as I said before, Louisville had grown really quickly. You know, there was, we played, there was another band called King Horse that drew uh, great shows. And we, you know, we'd just be able to save up enough to get a van. Our, our roadie actually got, got a van, Andy Tinsley, who's amazing, a human. Um, and so we, you know, we started playing shows and I think we were, it, one, I, I recognize this is totally biased. This is just my perception, but this is a, a combination of my perception and what people have told me later about their experiences with us. So we played, and I remember the first, uh, kind of one of our first big out of town shows on the East coast was Middlesex, New Jersey, Stacy. Uh, I mean, Tracy put that, McMahon put that up. And so we played this show and we were just like, what? You know, this, this, it was so different for us. We played the Midwest a lot, uh, oh, uh, Columbus, Ohio, Cleveland. Um, we played India a lot. Those were kind of shows. That we, and we played Detroit. But when we went to the East Coast, everything was different, right? We're like the, all, the big straight edge scene, kids with lots of track suits. And we're like, whoa, this is, you know, but, uh, <laughs> we're like, this is so different. And I remember we, we just kind of rolled out like, like a hot mess, you know? Uh, and then we, I remember we played it, we pulled a, uh, our roadie when we played, pulled this big metal dolly up on stage. And then during one of our songs, a song called cast, uh, there's this part in the middle. It's like, dun, dun, down. And he's beat with a baseball bat on this dolly. And then people are just <laughs> like, what is happening? You know? And then we were new and we just had this song out on, um, black black skies out on a comp so he played that and i guess everybody knew it everybody gets up on stage and then one of our guitar player loses his mind and chad picks up the guitar over his head like an axe and goes into the crowd he actually splits uh tim mcmahon's head open and someone else like people just people just thought we were nuts 
But from that time on, like we kind of were became a little bit notorious. And at first, we didn't really know what we were doing. Like we uh, we had crazy roadies that with us that were always you know, naked half the time. And I mean, we spent the night that night on a, a, at Trace's house, and we look out the window, and our guitar player and one of our roadies are naked up on their trampoline, jumping up and down in a suburban <laughs> neighborhood. Uh, and but after a while, we kind of that kind of all got turned inward. And then I think we became an emotionally, I'm not say power. It was a powerful experience because I think we became very honest with ourselves. And we also were feeling off a lot of kind of self hatred. And so we didn't know what to do with ourselves. So, so we would play and we would, you know, lose it, you know, just really find catharsis and playing shows and, you know, and I, I know, you know, I was already in, you know, I was on this platform, but it was insecure and, you know, it was, it was just the weirdest thing. You know, I we would, you know, there'd be lines of kids after we played that would just come up, and just hug us, you know, want to have hugs or I would get lots of letters from folks. I remember one time I was freaking out about body issues and I, I stripped all my clothes off on stage and, and knocked myself unconscious at this club called Rhino's. Like we were Whoa. just like, you know. Anyway, what that did is during that time, it really connected us to a lot of people in a very close way. I think. I think you know, like some of your traditional hardcore kids are like, they're stupid. <laughs> you know, they're like those emo jerks. You know, they they. they uh, I think they they didn't connect, but I think the people that really liked Endpoint really felt that connection, and I think we felt that with them. Um, and I say that with them, I think it was this really shared experience and we would come back to the same towns, the same people would be there and those shows really grew. And I think it was really, they really kept growing until around 94, uh, when we started kind of waning, I think our band started falling apart. Uh, people were ready to move on to other projects. Um, so yeah, it was, so I, so the scene was great. It was a good time for music. Uh, it was a good time for us for what we were doing at that time, and uh, and I, we felt very connected to people, you know, across the country. And um, yeah, it's 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 really hard to even get that back. You know, this is like pre most of it was pre Nirvana or Kurt Cobain explosion kind of thing. Like, still a time where you you know you walk down the street and you see somebody and you're like, oh, those are one of my people. You know, before everybody was grunge and. Like it was just, it was just a really unique, special time, at least to my recollection. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to have been involved in music and performing at a time before Nirvana broke. Because, you know, I'm one of those kids who I, I really fell in love with music during the alternative boom. And, you know, Nirvana kind of kicked that off, I guess, similar to how the Beatles kicked everything off for our parents. So it must have been really interesting to be involved in music and performing and touring and all that stuff before that whole thing became a, a staple. No, absolutely. And it, it was probably, you know, I never thought of it this way before, but it's probably a little confusing for us because, you know, before you, you drew a community of people that were very close, that were, that, that perceived or kind of identified as very different. And then yeah. what was that around 92? So the, then the last two years of Endpoint, like it's like some of the shows were giant. It's like, because suddenly the, the audience grew, you know, people are looking for all sorts of alternative music, you know? And so uh, our sound changed a little bit and it was just, uh, it was a different type of experience. 
and you know it, it may have had played some role in you know those last couple of years of momentum for us so you said uh the band ran into some opposition for some of your beliefs and outspokenness even back then because i feel like late 80s early 90s there was probably much more of that in hardcore i remember a lot a lot more activism and and uh, outspokenness and experimentation with the bands being more of a thing then yeah you know we had this like weird like we you know i don't know uh, we were somewhere in the middle between hardcore like hardcore if you listen to the, the our first album time i hate was you know just an amalgam of other bands types of songs with our spins on it spin on it and then we started finding our own way so we kind of lived in this place between you know not you know whatever emo was back then like we all listen to to different music than you know finger pointing music and so some which you know i still love some of that to this day but you know, we were in this, we were kind of in this um, weird place um, where we fit. And so I think sometimes people loved us and then sometimes, sometimes people didn't get us at all. And I, and I think that, you know, you'd be like, shut up, more talk, less, you know, less talk, more rock kind of thing. <laughs> and we'd also do things like, you know, like we play a show and there'd be some knuckleheads like full on stage diving on people's faces and we just stopped. You know, people get really upset, like stop or somebody get hurt. We'd stop. You know, we would talk, we would, you know, try to be, I don't know, you know, some people aren't very comfortable with, you know, other people emptying themselves emotionally because they're not ready for that too. And so some people would just kind of be like, well, whatever, or people, you know, maybe people perceive this, it couldn't be possible. It's fake. Or maybe people, um, I remember we got ridiculed from a, a certain group of folks because, you know, we spoke out for LGBTQ folks, which back then were our queer friends, you know, it's like, and so, you know, I, I you know, I don't know. I mean, it, so, so yes. And there's always, you know, we weren't unique. There's bands that always have opposition, you know, people like them, they don't people, especially nowadays, you know, with social media, it's like, you know, everybody has their opinion on a band. Uh, and maybe we were protected early on because you just didn't have all the, social media you know you didn't have you weren't exposed and so we were kind of protected to do our own thing you know and it shows people might voice their opinion or there'd be a zine where somebody say something nasty but you know you didn't have to you you were kind of free of the mass easily accessible scrutiny yeah you couldn't be like instantly uh defined as something and then just have the masses go along with whatever it was i guess you had to be written about in a publication or Word of mouth had to get around. Yeah, absolutely. What you're saying makes sense. There was a lot more gatekeeping and hardcore, and uh, this is too metal, this isn't real hardcore, these guys are too experimental, all, all that kind of stuff was much more rampant back then. I think they were people, we were just whiny, whiny babies. Let's see what people got. Like, stop it. So Yeah, you know what? When I I mean I got into hardcore around ninety-eight and I'd I'd love to know. I've never really thought about this too much, but I hated whenever any band had like any kind of value system or tried to educate people about something, like if they spoke out about anything politically or I, I would just hate it. I would be incensed. And I'd love to know what that's about. I don't know. Maybe it's an ego thing or a self-hatred thing or both. And uh, I've certainly had problems with those in the past, but I don't know what that's all about. You know, a part of it is people don't want to be told what to do, right? So, yeah. 
I, I mean, there's multiple levels. One, it's like they don't want to hear their dad on stage, their mom on stage telling them what to do. Two, I think that, you know, probably not in your case, but in many cases, you know, hardcore is tough, you know, and that's what it's supposed to be. That is just a place for me to like let out my aggression. And I went through that phase. I mean, they were terrible. You can, there's still like a notorious like video out there somewhere of Rob Pennington killing kids in the pit. You know, it's like, ah, uh, <laughs> you know, like you, as you're finding your, you know, as you were finding yourself, people kind of go through that. So yeah, I mean, I, I, and people have the right to their own opinion. I, I, but I always, you know, well, yeah. I mean, people have the right to their own opinion to, to experience music the way they want to experience. But I do. There, there are a lot of folks that get really pushed back or don't want other people's rules. I, a couple of years ago, we played by the grace of God played, and I, you know, and I just asked. I said, "Look, if you're gonna if you're gonna dance hard, go back there. I don't want you up front." I was like, but, and and. You know, and I, you know, one of the uh, folks that put on the show who was awesome, you know, it was great put on the show, but later he was really, you know, he's like, oh, they're fucking telling us how to do it. They just don't get it anymore. And to me, it's always like black and white. It's like everybody paid the same. These people up front want to have a good time. Why would I submit them to an oppressive evening where they might get hurt or punched in the face? Not everybody is here for that. You know, so to me, I, I tend to think of things more logically. But I understand, you know, how people interpret it as somebody out, you you just don't get it, you know. And so, yeah, you know, I don't know. I think I'm 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 spinning out here a little bit. But the I guess to bring back to the point is, yeah, I I respect everybody's opinions towards those types of things and and how they perceive how bands put out information or how they want to express themselves. But at the same time, you know, bands have a right to do that, you know. And and I, and I, you know. I, I think it's it's worse if I'm a band and I'm fucking you paid to see me and I'm berating all of you or are not interested in seeing you know basically I'm not interested in playing or don't bring it to you know I don't give my all in playing I think that's that you know that to me that's even more offensive than somebody out there telling me what they feel or you know sharing their experiences with them that all makes sense. Yeah, there's certainly an element of, you know, I just come here to hit people. I don't want to hear about a bunch of stuff. And now that I think about it, in my case, it's probably like, oh, I don't want to have to think about any ch- anything challenging. Like, I don't want to yeah. have to use my brain. So, uh, you know, I just want to watch music and watch people hit each other. No, when you're young, it's foreign, too. You're like, what the fuck? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, I can tell you the moment it changed for me. The moment it changed for me was in 19 i believe it was 88 and i and in my understanding it was fugazi's first out of town show ever and i remember ian talking about rape and it, and i had never you know he says right he's like this song's about rape or, or and uh, um, somebody in the background was like fuck yeah and then and and ian was like shut the fuck up and it just got really you know uh terse for a minute and then they played that song suggestion and man, it just, from then on, I just realized like it touched me so deeply and it was such a learning experience for me that suddenly I just like, I want that to be a norm. I want to hear people, other people in these bands might have interesting opinions too. You know, they're things to share for me. And so that was the first time I ever remember listening to a band and being like, wow, my life is changed by what, by not just listen, not just the music, but what they're saying, what they're, what they're, what they're telling me. I like that. That's interesting how 
people are affected by different things they see and just run with it. Like you, Rob, you know, you had that experience and in your bands, you've always been very outspoken about things and had important things to say. But me, like that was a huge turnoff. And if I envisioned myself in a band, I just wanted to sing about girls I was upset about or things that were difficult for me. So it's just, I guess it's a mix of psychology and your experience and just what's important to you. Everybody's different. Uh, People go in different directions. Oh, yeah. Well, and and to be fair, I have my share of songs (laughs) about (laughs) broken relationships and and those types of (laughs) things, too. Uh, So, yeah, those those are imbued in all of us through our interactions with failed love experiences being young. So end point is over. How does it end? What happens? You said everybody is ready to move on to the next thing or what, like, was there a breaking point or a conversation? What happens? Yeah. So, um, again, this is my perception of this, but you know, we were at a place, shows are really big. We were, um, strained. Not everybody felt the same about the types of song music we were doing. I don't think everybody felt the same about the band. I don't think everybody felt the same about each other anymore. Uh, we kind of had broken off into camps within the band. Duncan and I were really close and, uh, you know, other folks were kind of finding their own ways. And, and, and so I think, so simultaneously Duncan had started doing guilt and started exploring other types of music, which, uh, which is great. By the way, they have a, they, I think they're going to be playing in the spring. And that's a band that I, that I loved a lot. And then the other guys, like, I think they were just over it. I mean, we were, you know, young. I was in my early 20s. I think that there was a lot of pressure on us. I was probably, you know, sappily over-idealistic. And they were, you know, I think some of them were just kind of like yawn, you know. I, and I think that, I think it was just, it had just run its course. And so um, we we all, they decided coming back from a, a tour that they didn't want to do it anymore. And then they, they told me outside in the van and then we kind of agreed um, that it was over. And then we played one big last show and we played a big last show and then that was it. And then we all kind of went on to do our own things. And, about, and then about a year later, so I, I messed around with a band called Amaroke. Um, we never recorded anything. There's some live recordings, I think, of us. And then uh, Duncan was doing Guilt. And the other guys were doing various projects. And then uh, about a year, maybe it was like a year after that or so, um, some of the guys from my band Amaroke, or one of the guys, the, the drummer, uh, and you know, I was still close friends with Duncan, and we decided to do By the Grace of God. You know, and, and there were so many there were so many bands in that mid nineties that were doing stuff, and there was you know, and it had really switched away from this kind of positive. There was a lot of like, I don't know, we we just felt like there there was a lot of anger and i I think there i think we just thought there needed to be a different voice and so we're like we can do this and so we wrote the first seven inch and victory put it out uh and then you know we should we still play together today today we got that last record in 2018 how was the reception in the beginning did people was anybody stuck on end point? Uh, did, did you have any difficulty? Because you're right, there's a lot more metallic stuff going on, a lot angrier stuff going on. I'm sure the landscape of the scene had changed a bit since end point got started. Did, did you find any difficulty in all that? No, I think people were psyched. You know, especially, again, we, have, so we had such a loving community back in Louisville that I think people were you know, psyched to see round two. 
see us do something different. You know, Endpoint had run its course uh, and meant a lot to a lot of people and ourselves included, but it was done. And so I think that there was some excitement that we were doing some new music. And so, yeah, I think, you know, there, there, I, to my recollection, there wasn't really any uh, difficulty in terms of uh, get, getting that band going. It was super fun too. I think I think we I think our first show we actually jumped on and played a couple songs uh, in an Earth Crisis set. I think and Duncan had already be- become friends with those guys through uh, experiences, maybe touring with them with Guilt. And so yeah, it was fun. I like that. Yeah, there was a lot of great stuff going on in the scene at that time. I mean, great emo type bands, for lack of a better term. Great hardcore bands, the more traditional sounding stuff great metallic hardcore bands. And then we started getting into all the uh, more experimental stuff that I fell in love with at the time, Botch, Coalesce, Dillinger, Escape Plan. There's it's just a big melting pot of good stuff. No, absolutely. It was a great time. It really was. And it was fun to be, you know, we were, we were further along in our lives. So I was already a, a teacher and uh, Duncan was in, in graduate school. And so we would get to do these kind of short, we'd be very fortunate. We would get invites to do uh, tours, you know, so like Avail or Snapcase. Uh, I remember, <laughs> this is really funny. It's humorous to me now as we were able, we um, got to play a tour with AFI and Good Riddance and the op- and we're, and the opening band on the bill was at the drive-in, which was hilarious because of course they were so huge, you know, so we had these really great experiences where we get to play these, you know, these short tours um, and played a lot of weekend shows and things like that, but we didn't do a lot of extensive touring. So it was, you know, it was just kind of a different, you know, a different place. I think we knew by the grace of God was super fun and we loved it, but we didn't, I don't think we ever saw ourselves as, you know, we we're going to be full-time musicians with by the grace of God, uh, for the rest of our lives. I think our, our, you know, endpoint. who knows, you know, we were still in school figuring out what we're doing with our lives by the grace of God was just a fun project that we wanted to, you know, just keep doing as long as we could that's amazing do you uh, do you still just i'd be randomly walking up to people who don't even know about music and i'd be like do you know that i toured with afi and at the drive-in one time i would just be telling everybody <laughs> <laughs> no every now and then you're like oh yeah oh those guys were i mean it was that that at the drive-in we the, got super close with those guys because you know we were kind of outcast too like good riddance had their own vibe AFI was awesome. I mean, they, it was it was really before they exploded, and so they were super fun, and we hung out with them. But you know, we were the low men on the totem pole, so you know, we were always cutting up. And uh, I remember one time we, you know, we were playing in Vegas, and and uh, Omar, you know, pulls us runs runs behind us naked, you know. And then I remember laying that show, we hung him by his underwear on a fence, like you know, it was just. <laughs> constant i mean they they were kind of our people we thought they were hilarious their sense of humor you know they would just ravage you know the 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 kind of some of the goofballs that would show up at the shows and you know they didn't fit so people would just be screaming because they wanted to hear good riddance or afi or uh and so <laughs> i mean uh, uh i won't even go into it but, but yeah there were lots of, there were lots of fights back and forth between the band and the audience and it was just a pleasure to watch. Cedric can certainly handle the crowd too. He's quick. Oh, he's so quick. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. And they blew our minds. I mean, they, in my opinion, they were better than all of us. Like it was just their energy. They were raw. We're like, who the fuck are these guys? They were so good. 
Like, you know, you never, you don't get to tour that often where you're just excited to see the band before you. You're like, okay, you know, usually I kind of zone out. Like I have to think for a little bit before I play, but this time it's like, no, I want to watch at the drive-in every time they play because they were just that mesmerizing and fun. The stories I hear about them, I th- that's one band I never got to see that I really regret. But the stories I hear are they just looked really different, and you you know people would see them and be like, "Who the fuck are these guys?" But then they'd see them play, and it would just be this unbelievably incredible experience. Yeah, it really was. It was it was pure in, a, in its energy. You know, it just yeah. was. Uh, it was so enjoyable. And at the drive-in was really hot. I mean, I mean, and AFI was really hot at that time too. You know, they were just growing into into popularity, and so to watch people fawn over them, and and again, they were so and they were such nice guys. Um, so yeah, it was it was good, and we loved Chuck from Good Riddance. We liked all the Good Riddance guys, but Chuck is just hilarious and a sweetheart. That's awesome. Yeah, I had Russ on the show before. That was good. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I guess the whole point of all this is, yeah, so we got to do these really fun tours that kind of kept the band going and had some really great opportunities. But you're not, uh, the goal is not to tour the world nonstop and make a living off of music. You're already, you are already teaching by this time. Yeah, already. I mean, it's, I mean, it would, so tours were having the summer, the winters, and then long weekends of shows, basically. I kind of already knew what I wanted to do. By that point, when I was when I was young, maybe I could be convinced, you know, that maybe put the eggs in the, in the music basket. But I, at this point, I really love working in special education, so I was equally satisfied by the the connections that the band made helped me make, and then what I was doing in the classroom. And you'll start to hear special education songs, lyrics about special education coming into By the Grace of God, which was kind of interesting at that time. Yeah, you sound pretty balanced. You got to be what, like mid to late 20s at this point? And, and you have the wherewithal to say, okay, I have my job, I have my career, and I'm going to fit in this band and these tours when I can. Yeah. You know, part of it was probably a little bit of cowardice too. It's You know, it's scary. Like, I, I had enough sense to be like, yeah, we're probably not going to make it, this type of thing. So, I mean, I'm sure that was in the, that fed into there somewhere. It's not all like, I'm super balanced guy, but I did, I did strike a good balance and it was really fun. Like we'd have a, you know, we'd have like a, a Friday off in service day for teachers. Like, well, that means Thursday we get on the road, drive all day. We play Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I get back in the middle of the night, Monday, you know, and then start teaching Monday morning. So, I mean, so we worked it definitely to make things happen. So we're going strong until 2001, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Around there. Yeah. Right until about. You know, and Duncan is the great uh, documenter of all this. He has an impeccable memory for some of these things. But we, Duncan went to grad school maybe in 2000. And so, or maybe in 1999. And then I decided, then I, I think I did Alshia, which was another band. But then I moved out there to live for a year. And so from then on, we just, you know, we were just kind of when we were together, we do, we did a few tours, uh, but we, we, Duncan was in graduate school at, at Denver. And then, um, I started a, a whole nother series of bands, like a, gosh, almost two decades worth of, I call them the black years. So it was black widows and then black cross and then black God. Uh, and that lasted until 2018. And then by the grace of God, you know, still, you know, we did 
two two more European tours. We played shows in Louisville. We play one offs here and there. Black Widows, I remember that band. That's a great band. Yeah, it was fun, really fun. I came back like I was in uh, Colorado for a year, and then realized I'm, it wasn't the place for me. And then uh, came back and was like, God, what do I do? You know, with Duncan, you know, and I've been in so many bands together, and so really great guy Ryan Patterson was was playing in some other bands and uh, I approached him about playing some music and then his brother joined the band and Tommy Brown, who was in By the Grace of God, uh, joined the band and then we started doing Black Widows. And that was, um, we were Black Widows for maybe a year or two and then we signed to uh, Equal Vision and then at the same time, some guy from New York had a cover band called the Black Widows and then threatened to sue us if we didn't change our name. He had like some flyer that predated it. It was, it was kind of crazy, but we went to Black Cross, which is a pretty solid name. And then uh, did that for many years. And then we decided, and then when that band was kind of finishing up, Ron and I and, and Nick, we decided we still wanted to play together. So then we formed uh, Black God, which was on no idea and put out four EPs. So the black years is a fitting time for that decade, as you described. <laughs> it is. I still remember Black Widows. I remember that band coming out, and then there, there was some hype. I think I bought the CD at, I don't know if this memory is correct. I think I bought the CD at one of the Hell Fests or something. I can still see that blue and white cover in my head. Yeah, yeah. No, maybe we, we didn't play the Hell Fest. I, I think we, we played the Fest. Uh, Around that time when we were, I think when we were uh, Black Widows, but yeah, we yeah. never, I, ne- I never played a Hellfest. I think I just bought the CD there because yeah. there, you know, there'd be a lot of distros and stuff, and I was like, all right, let's go. Let's check this thing out. Yeah, that yeah. was fun. It was fun to play. I, you know, I did different things with my voice, and those guys are, are, are completely different people. You know, and and Ryan is so talented; he has a great ear and can play so many different things. I, I don't know if you know Ryan. Ryan's like in Coliseum, was in Coliseum, and now does photo crime. Um, just a really super talented guy. Also does Shirt Killer, which has a distro, but of that, he has black uh, cat magic punks, which is just awesome artwork, <laughs> cat-themed cat artwork. Uh, you should check it out if you haven't. Yeah, Shirt Killer. I know I've seen them on my Instagram. I, I, cool. I know that account. That's Ryan? Yeah. Super oh, good. nice. So, by the grace of God, goes until about 2001. Now, why does this end? Are, are, are you going back to school or like what happens? Yeah. So, so Duncan lives in Denver at this time, which is like 18 hours away. And so, you know, I think he, he focused on his graduate degree. And then I was, you know, I was working a new job at the, I was working for a large school district, one of their kind of autism consultants. And then, um, and he started doing solo stuff, D-Biddle. And then maybe that's the time I started doing Alshia. And then, oh, uh, yeah, I already went through this. And then, you know, then I, start, I already started playing Black Cross. So there just wasn't was a lot of room in our lives for it at that point. So, I mean, we, we were still connected. We talked about, yeah, we'll still break up. <laughs> Who knows what we'll do? But uh, we just, you know, we just had a, a period of our lives where we just had a lot of different things happening that filled those spaces. So it, uh, based on the, the timeline, it just seems like you've never stopped playing. You've been pretty active in music and have always been doing it while somehow also attaining a PhD. Yeah, yeah. G- careful planning, you know, <laughs> or, sque- <laughs> or squeezing, squeezing lots of things in there. But yeah, absolutely. 
you know, I almost broke my heart. I thought when I moved here, I wouldn't be able to play music. And so I'm um, really, a, again, a real fortunate to found the guys here. Yeah, I think uh, I think it just finds you. All you need is a little bit of willpower. You know, there, there's been a million times where I thought I was done with bands or bands were done with me. And it always seems to come back up again. And I'm very happy about that. Yeah, man. But we're both very lucky, for sure. Yes. So looking at your email signature, it says you're a PhD and a board certified behavior analyst. I looked it up when I, when I saw the uh, the acronym because I have some letters next to my name as well. And I was like, oh, let's see what this is about. Do I have that correct? Uh, you're absolutely correct. That's, uh, yeah, I'm a, a board certified behavior analyst. And so uh, uh, behavior analysis is like kind of a, the science of human behavior. So kind of why people do what they do. And when you apply that, you know, it's applied in many ways. So, there, you know, everything from the, the uh, safety industry to uh, organizational behavior management. But my application of it is in the area of severe disabilities. So we are kind of uh, have a lot of evidence in, in our practices and strategies for helping kids that want have difficulties learning, but also kids that engage in severe, challenging behavior. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... You got to be a special kind of person to do that work, I think, because you're dealing with a population who has special needs, and I'm sure there's uh, many special considerations, right? It's, I mean, it's probably taxing at times. Yeah, but I, I would say, I mean, probably any job is taxing, right? Um, I do, enjoy, I do enjoy the work. I, you know, you're connecting with people, um, you're you're getting to advocate and support people. You're you're helping, I think, sometimes bring to light the strengths of people with disabilities that sometimes people are conditioned to not see. And so, yeah, I really like, and then there's the, the, the kind of pragmatic part of it of, you know, I get to, so I do research also. So I train teachers, I train behavior analysts, and then I do research studies. And so I get to invent new interventions and test them and see if they work and, and try to uh, come up with ways to solve problems to make people's lives better. So it's, so it's, you know, it's just innately, I don't know, innately it's not the right word, but it's, it's, it's just a very rewarding thing to do. It's, it doesn't mean I'm a special person. I was just really lucky. Again, my dad was a teacher. He told me not to teach because uh, he, <laughs> he, he left teaching. And so again, like the good son, screw you, dad, I'm going to teach anyway. Uh, <laughs> and then I got into it and I just really loved it. Yeah. I, mean, I love the families. I love, ex- I, I had compassion for the, 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 some of the challenges that families faced. I learned, you know, I learned a little bit about diversity. My parents were, you know, kind of country folks. Most of my family members uh, were, looked a lot like me and the people in my community. And so I taught in the West End of Louisville, which is mostly people that don't look like me, right? People of color. And so I got to learn and spend times and build relationships with families that taught me a lot. And so again, uh, you know, I, I, I benefit from them, from my experiences, those families and individuals way more than I probably even benefited. You know, my work has helped to uh, help their cause. And so, yeah, it's just, I'm just, just a lucky guy. I love that. That's awesome. You know, giving back, being involved in different communities, it has to be very fulfilling, but I'm curious. You said you like, you invent new ways of uh, dealing with behavior, like new methodologies. Like, how do you do that? Do you just I mean, do you research and then come up with something on paper and you try it out with somebody and, and like, how does that work? You know, it's not really invent. It's more of like kind of extend, right? So basically, you know, you have decades of research uh, building toward, you know, showing that different components of strategies work. 
And so then you have, you face a new problem. So like one of the, so I do a lot of um, research in the area of written expression for kids that don't, that don't speak many of them or speak very, have minimal uh, communication skills. And so I know that these certain prompting strategies work. And I know by using these things called, um, well, anyway, I'm trying to uh, (laughs) have a more lay explanation, but by kind of repetition and using these sentence frames and varying them in certain ways, I can apply these. I can put all this package together, test it with kids with complex needs, and then you see what happens. And then when it doesn't work or you tweak it to try to make it work better. So like one of the first studies I did, I taught some kids to that that you that most people wouldn't expect to be able to write to write simple stories. But then I realized, you know, oh, I taught them party tricks. They can write one or two stories, but how helpful is that going to be for them? So then we started mix we started mixing thing mixing um, the instructional sessions up such that there was enough variation that kids learn more of the process, right? And so they're able to kind of write their own stories or write about what they want to write about. And then we said, you know what, this is really great, but there's a lot of kids that can't write sentences. And so we taught using the same technologies to teach these kids to write sentences. And then I worked with a software company and we developed a uh, and tested a piece of software that taught it automatically. So it had all these strategies built into it, gave, gave kids feedback. Um, and then we tested that out and kids were able to, you know, it, it was effective for most of the kids. And so you just kind of extend your work uh, when you, and look to the previous research to modify that, change those strategies in ways that fit new contexts. How about that? We have a big, we have a big state now where we're looking at robots. And so we have, wow. we're t- yeah. So imagine kids with probably even more so your age, you know, like, I mean, I grew up with the Atari, you know, there wasn't like, I don't think I've ever played like a first role action, whatever they, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so those You've never played uh, World of Warcraft or EverQuest or any of that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, and so, what you know, what do people do in those video games? When a kid used to get it, they would call each other and ask for cheat codes and stuff, right? So, like, video games can be great places for kids to communicate. So, we thought that one, kids with autism don't get ever get experience to learn coding and, and uh, STEM content or don't often and so we took um, a coding curriculum some colleagues and i and then we embedded in that social skills instruction so you know there'd be opportunities for kids to learn how to ask for things and share skills and and comment and compliment and negotiate and we built a curriculum around that and so we're so right now so a teacher can teach these stem skills science technology engineering math right to uh, their kids, while also teaching them social skills. And again, these are kids that have pretty complex needs. And so uh, it's it's really fun watch you know watching it work. And then each year we we iterate it, make it a little bit better. It's like a four year project. So that's what I mean. It's not inventing. It's really extending or or building new applications of what we know works or finding you know. Uh, testing interventions to see if they work in different settings. Sorry, you just got me on a real big nerd tangent. Sorry. No, I, I'm I'm fascinated by this, honestly. So you're working for the university, like you said, you get a grant. What do you get together with people and like map out these uh, methodologies, or do you like yeah. contact the experts and they help you put it all together? How does it work? Yeah. So we uh, 
So essentially, the, there'll, there'll be these large grant calls. And so a lot of our work is funded by the federal government. So every year they put out these calls, people apply for them. And then if they like your idea, then you have, and then you get it. And so this, so usually it's a team of experts in different areas. So a lot of my expertise has, I've done a lot of work with technology and uh, teaching communication skills to kids with complex needs. Uh, my colleague for this grant at uh, Claire Donhauer at Georgia State, she's she has done some some early work with these types of robots. And then another colleague of mine, Trey Vasquez, you know he's a big technology guy at Central Florida. And then another and then another uh, colleague. Anyway, these folks, we all come together, we build, put in a proposal, and then if it gets funded, we run it. You know, and usually the the federal grants you're expected to run these across multiple states. And so we started in Georgia. We're doing it now here in Charlotte and Florida, and then we will continue to extend it across the country as we make it better. And at the end of this four years, because it's a federal grant, we'll give it away for free, right? So people can just download it. Parents, teachers can have access to it and then try it out in their own classrooms with their students. So that's just one type of grant. But yeah, that's, that's kind of how it works. There's a call, all these universities and people come together and compete for them. And then the, the, uh, you know, there's a panel review them and they award them the folks. So you must get paid the big bucks, right? You're a PhD, you're working at a university, you got recruited by, you're training the trainers, huh? Uh, I, I mean, it, it, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm very privileged to have a decent salary, but you know, well, I'm again, I'm a, uh, an education professor, so it's not like I'm in, you know, the big, big fields, but no, I, I, ah. yes. Yeah. So you're, it's not like a pharmaceutical company or some corporation, it's education. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but but no, I I I I definitely uh you know again I'm privileged to to make a salary doing something that I like a whole lot. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So let's talk about Jupiter Hearts some more. You've got a new record out on Simba Records that came out this year. Yes. Yes. Just a few months ago. How's the band going? How's the record going? Yeah. So you know. Um, it's exceeded all expectations, and I can't. I don't remember if we talked about this before we recorded or not. But the um, the guys we got together, and you know, again, it was just kind of happenstance. We all connected, and then you know, we were able to write these songs, and we really had about eleven songs. Um, these were four of our favorite, um, and then we've written more, and I think we're going to record again in the spring. And so the record came out. Um, we recorded it in Raleigh. Uh, with which is just a really fantastic guy, and then uh, um, yeah, it can't, and then Veek, uh, Veek Simba, Veek Martin, she was uh, she said that she would put it out, and I, you know, I basically just asked her, said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And she was like, yeah. And so uh, um, we did a small run, uh, and I think most of those are gone. And so yeah, we've been really pleased. I like the band too. It's got kind of a. Uh... It's got kind of a indie rock meets hardcore sound almost. Yeah. You know, I think it's, you know, one, we all grew up really liking kind of DC-ish hardcore and have lots. Of, and and, the, and I think really you can hear the um, the influences of the other guys. And so, you know, Charlie is in a cover band. So if you listen, there's, there's some riffs that sound a little bit like the Who on some of our songs or have some weird kind of. U2E, like I've, I've heard really interesting explanations of uh, our people describe our band. So, and then of course, you know, somebody that owns a record store with Scott, you know, he has such a, a wealth of music knowledge and interest. And Tim is, 
you know, I say he's like your classic European hardcore dude. Like he loves everything. He loves all sorts of music. He's like, like Rob, have you heard this song? And have you heard this song in this band? I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm old. Uh, and so, and I tend to like this, you know, and I tend to like the same stuff, but you know, it's really funny. I always grew up really loving like, like, you know, most lots of hardcore dudes. I, I love like rights of spring and early DC stuff. And it's really funny. And, the, uh, and like other bands, I had this habit of letting so, like, like my like songs and notes kind of drag out, and yeah, I you know, I listen to them back now. I'm like, yeah, I wish I didn't do that as much. But with this band, I can kind of just yeah, I don't know, I can let it go and explore a little bit, and um, so it's just been really fun. And again, it's a clean slate. It's like wow, you get to try something different with new people, and and when it works out, it's even more amazing. It's like how many times in your life do you get to sit down with groups of people? and they put out a record and you really like them, you know, that just doesn't always happen. I mean, it's like, it's like dating. Like how many times you get married? Maybe sometimes three, five people, sometimes people get married a lot, but you know, you go through a lot of dating for things not to work. And yeah, I've, I've sat around with some guys before to see if things worked out in a few times. So like, yeah, but I've been very fortunate to um, on multiple occasions, sit down with people and connect. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I like the spin that you and, uh, the people that you work with put on things. I definitely hear the DC influence. Like uh, I discovered Black Widows at a time when I was on a real kind of DC hardcore kind of kick, like Ink and Dagger was and is still one of my favorite bands. And people have compared them to to, uh, Swizz a lot. And, uh, you know, at that time I was like, Ink and Dagger, Black Widows, These Arms Are Snakes, anything that kind of had that like rock and roll hardcore dc sound however you want to describe it i i really like that kind of stuff yeah me too those are great guys i knew sean and and dom was a great guitar player and um yeah those were good dudes uh, and that was around yeah. that time mid 90s and again that I, I remember when dom was in frail and uh we would go up you know and fill in hang out and that it was just um yeah anyway that was a really good time and and it's funny too if you listen to that and you listen to some of the more chaotic later that was the problem with black cross our our record on equal vision like i love that record it was fun uh, we got to record with jay robbins who was just amazing like that guy like i couldn't get out what i wanted to and he's like here you go he's like and he went and got like an old sm58 and he's like you need to sing into this you don't need this like whatever and he you know and he read my lyrics and was like this is powerful and like like that was just such a good experience but our songs had so many fucking parts they're just like, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, the, the record that we did after that kind of that, that Ryan put out, like, it's a lot more like kind of like groove, you know, it's got like cool verses and choruses and some, you know, bridges and parts, but, you know, uh, Black Cross cracks me up because it'd be like, dun, 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 you know, it's like, <laughs> it, was a, it was a hot mess. Uh, but what you'll hear about Ryan, like all those bands, even the Black, Black God bands, like there's this, also this really cool, like San Diego, like, uh, downstroke kind of thing that he does that that's got a little swagger into it and like i love that about ryan like that that that, that was a really different element from endpoint by the grace of god and the other bands that that i played in yeah i mean you must look back pretty fondly on everything you've done all the bands you've worked with some incredible labels some incredible producers it sounds like jay robbins i mean you've you've done a lot yeah i mean i, I again i've been really fortunate shit it's like i Nobody really, I mean, from a from a 
science and human behavior perspective is like nerdy things. <laughs> but basically, I mean, yeah, we, we kind of choose, but really our environment helps us choose. And so like, I've just been really fortunate to somehow be positioned in a place where I get to contact with some just really spend time with really talented people and good people. You know, it's like, I can also say that too. The majority of all people I've played with have just been high quality humans. You know, they care about people. They, when they play shows, they, care a lot about the people they're playing for you know if there's a if there's a question that comes up you know the, the types of guys you play a show and like some kid sitting there and he's like you know i don't really i can pay you but you know i won't be able to eat you know there was <laughs> the guys that all, almost every time like yeah whatever it, it's fine you don't you know you don't have to pay us like just just good people always and and i and i'm really happy uh that that's happened I mean, fuck, it, it, the better you get to them, you know, when you're, the older you get, you know, I'm not that old yet, but you know, you're 50, you're just like, huh, I'm getting up there. But you, but it, you get, you really get the chance to kind of shine back or, or just kind of scam back over your life and, you know, kind of be able to assess like, huh, how, how'd that go? And, and fuck, it's gone really, really well. But again, it's because of other people. It's because of, I've, I've contacted people that were just rich with gifts and, and willingness to share and, and teach me things. And so, yeah, and I'm not saying that just, I mean, I'm saying that all sincerity. I know that sounds like kind of the right chicken soup for your soul type thing to say, but man, I really, I mean, they're just wonderful people in my life. I love that. Yeah, no, and I'm totally with you. It, it does sound like chicken soup for the soul stuff sometimes, but it's true. I'm older now. Instead of being angry and resentful about things I didn't get, I can look back and say, wow, I was surrounded by great people, great bands, went to great shows went on some great tours, got to play in some of my own bands. It's all good. No, absolutely. You know what else too is I also had a great wife who who's always supported me playing music and doing a little bit of things. You know, it's like I already give enough of my time away to work and things like that. You know, she's like, okay with being like, you know, you want to go away for the weekend? You want to go on tour for a couple of weeks? She knows I need that. It's always been great. She's a musician herself. And so it, it, that, that's also been kind of wonderful to have a partner that, that understands how much that means to me. Well, Rob, tell us what's coming up. What do we have to look forward to? Uh, more Jupiter Hearts releases? Any more by, by the Grace of God shows? Anything. You've done a lot of bands. So, I mean, anything is possible. Yeah. So we are, I don't know if by the grace of God is dead yet, we, we keep talking about, you know, we were going to play this weekend or uh, we were going to play um, this winter and then some things came up, but yeah, we, we plan on still playing together. Some, uh, I think Jupiter hearts has a new EP, all the songs written for an EP that we're going to record this spring and hopefully still uh, be graced by uh, Beak by putting that out for us on Simba. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. We're going to start playing more shows. You know, uh, I believe that we are going to be playing with Guilt back in Louisville in May, which will be really exciting. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Got a bunch of cool stuff work-wise, some, some books, some studies you know, that, we're, that we're doing, which is awesome. So if you're into special education or you want to talk about it, hit me up. Yeah, that's it. Awesome. Well, Rob, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, you're doing great work with your PhD. That's awesome. And you've just been in an incredible amount of awesome bands and delivered the world a bunch of great music. So thank you. Thank you for your time and for coming on the show.
Oh, Keith, you're awesome. God, you're, you're overstating my worth, but I really appreciate, appreciate the time to talk to you about it. Again, it's, it's, it's kind of fun, right? Just being able to kind of rehash and relive things and talk about things from, that you enjoyed from your past. So I appreciate the opportunity to do that. And there you have it, Rob Pennington. Awesome conversation. Really nice guy. I'm glad I had the opportunity to talk to him. I mean, look at his resume. You can't beat that. End point. By the grace of God. Black Cross. And now, Jupiter Hearts. I forgot he was in Black Cross leading up to this conversation. I'm recording so many of these shows, you have no idea. The schedule is insane. The guy has done so much good music. I can't even keep track of it. Like I was telling Rob, I remember when that Black Widow's CD came out. I can still see the cover in my head. I don't even know if I knew there was a Black Widow's By the Grace of God connection. I just knew that Black Widow's was a new band people were telling me I would like. I'm going to listen to it. And I did. And it's good. And look, Rob had a lot of great stories. I I like hearing about the old scene days from when I got into things. And he's never stopped recording. And hearing about all the work he's doing with his PhD. I mean, the guy managed to get a PhD while putting out some of the best music our scene has ever heard. Really great conversation. Thank you again, Rob. Awesome. So let's check in. How are we doing? I feel insane. I'm in the middle of a recording grind for the podcast. I'm doing two, three interviews a week, and it's nuts. But there's a lot of good stuff to look forward to in terms of this show. I'll leave it right there. I like like it to be a surprise week to week. Who's going to be on? It's more exciting that way. Life has been nuts. You know, I was hoping to ease into my Christmas vacation because, you know, things things usually slow down at work end of the year and you kind of ease into the last week where you usually have off and then you cruise through New Year's Eve and then You start up in January again, and it's back to the grind. But my work has crammed so much stuff into this last month. It's insane. I'm doing some work with a big client in the financial district, so that's taking up a lot of time. I just had a one-day gig in St. Louis. I flew in Monday, and I was on site all day with this client Tuesday, and then I flew back the same night. And, you know, travel... I used to travel constantly for my job. I'm talking wake up Monday, fly to California, be there till Friday, fly back Friday night, Monday, fly back to California, and that would go on for six weeks. I was gone all the time, and I really disliked it. But what I'm doing now, there is not as much travel. And because of my previous life, I'm talking a long time ago, travel is difficult for me because drugs were tied up in travel. You know, I would leave. And I would be in really bad shape. And then I'd be gone all week. And, you know, I wouldn't want to go into some random city most of the time to go and try and find drugs. So by the time I came home, I'd be in really bad shape. Really bad shape. In withdrawal, looking for more. If I was lucky, I left some at home so I could come home and do it and then be okay. Or I'd have to wait for the guy to show up for hours after that. So being in airports can trigger a lot of that. But I'm happy to report that I was in the air. On the way there, I was fine. I wasn't thinking about that kind of stuff. I felt fine. 
you know, I got on the plane, I got to St. Louis, I was fine. Uh, but coming home, you know, that's when all the drug triggers would happen and I'd be in this frenzy and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to come home and call a drug dealer. And I wasn't really thinking about drugs so much. And now it's shifted to like I was flying home and I was like, oh, I'm going to be home. I'm going to eat ice cream and drink soda and play video games and stay up all night on YouTube. It's going to be crazy. Like that's where my brain goes now, which is good. That's healthier than drugs. I mean, come on. So I got home and I just went to bed because <laughs> I got home at like 10 p.m. on Tuesday night. I was tired. So I couldn't do all the fun stuff that I had planned to do. But look, there'll be plenty of time to do that during vacation. While I was in St. Louis, I got there Monday at around, I don't know, 3 p.m. I did my favorite thing. I got in the rental car and I went and got fast food at a drive through And then I sat in the parking lot in the car and ate the fast food while listening to Howard Stern. That is my favorite thing to do. I never get to do that anymore because I live in New York City and I haven't owned a car since 2007. So that was fun. I'm home now. It's going to be a busy week. I've got to go do another site visit in the financial district tomorrow and I don't want to do it. And look, I'm happy though. You know, I've been talking a little more about the recovery process because it's a big part of my life and I want to spend more time with you and talk about things that are going on with me and be more open about stuff. So with this whole recovery thing, the 12-step recovery thing that I'm doing, there's a lot of self-discovery. There's a lot of thinking about the past, you know, in working the steps. I've got to write down a lot of stuff from my past and then read it to a guy, my sponsor, and your life really changes in the process of doing this because before I started doing all that, look, my concern was just getting off of drugs. I was doing them for a very long time and they had really whittled my life down to nothing. I was doing very little. I was definitely in danger of dying. I was 20 pounds underweight and I didn't talk to anyone or go anywhere or do anything. I just went outside the bare minimum that I had to came back home and watched horrible shit on Netflix or played video games, which is cool, which is cool. I still do that. But look, once you get over the drugs, you really start to see the wreckage that you did to your life. And in writing down a lot of stuff about my past, you know, I used to be like, oh, I got out easy. You know, okay, I wasted some money. I'm in debt. I can get out of debt, but I never overdosed. I never killed anybody. I never got fired from a job. I'm fine. I, I got out easy. But now that I'm writing down all this stuff and really looking at my past, I see what a disservice I did to myself for so long. Imagine if I had the focus when I was 18 years old that I do now. Imagine what I could have done. Maybe I could have owned property. Maybe I could have been in a relationship that I didn't destroy. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And look, I don't get too hung up on this stuff because I had no ability to act like a normal person back then or make rational choices. But you think about it when you write down all this stuff. So I've been writing down all this stuff and going over it with my sponsor. And, you know, I, I just found myself now in 2022 waking up every morning. And as soon as I walk away from the computers and get in the shower, the chorus of disapproval starts like this person fucked you over. You got fucked over here. Uh, you didn't do this. They said that. You're mad at them, that, 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 that. And I was like, oh, God, 
this is so annoying that the second I stop working, this is right where my brain goes. And I found myself thinking about the same few things over and over again. And I had a revelation as I was standing there in the shower, as I often do. And I was like, wait a minute, you, you're thinking about these same things over and over again, because you're not addressing any of them with the actual people, you know, and the way this thing is structured, whenever you have a thought, you don't just run and call the person right away and talk about it, because that could be damaging to you or that to the person or both, you write it all down, you go over it with your trusted sponsor, right? And then uh, you make decisions from there. And, and my life has really improved. I used to have so much self-hatred, and I was angry. And I was just in this imaginary competition with everyone. And I had a huge ego and no self-esteem. And this all just presents many problems and makes you very unhappy. And I'm not saying I'm perfect now, far from it. Uh, but I, I, I'm not carrying around all this weight anymore. So yeah, I know it's, it's, it's a great process. I'm happy to be in it. I'm happy to be helped and to help others. So that's what's going on. Christmas is this week. This will be the last show you hear before Christmas. So happy holidays. Merry Christmas. If you celebrate, I know this is a hard time of year. Uh, when I was getting high all the time, I was always out of money, couldn't afford gifts for anybody, couldn't afford drugs for myself. It was always a really, really hard time. And it's still a really, really hard time. I'm short on cash. I want to make sure I get everybody something nice. I don't want to disappoint anybody. I want to make sure I get down to see my family. And that's always stressful because look, it's, I like seeing my family, but it's stressful. It's stressful. But I was stressing about money and I was like, oh man, how am I going to afford this? I'm putting more money on the credit card. Uh, and then work was like, hey, this bonus that you've been waiting for for six months is coming through. And I was like, yes, yes. Thank goodness, whatever, whatever's out there. Thank you. So it's Christmas time. After that, we're going to get into the really cold, deadly months of winter. So listen, if you're out there and you're struggling or you don't have anybody to talk to or you're just having a hard time in general, I'm wishing you the best. Hang in there. We're going to get through the holidays. We're going to get through January and February, and then we're going to get into the brighter months, and it's going to be awesome. So let's do this. Next week is the best of 2022 episode of The New Scene. Casey from Iodine Recordings will be joining me. We'll each be presenting our top 10 records of 2022. So make sure you tune in for that. Uh, we also talk about the show a little bit, some of our favorite episodes, and I reveal the most listened to episode of the new scene in 2022. So check that out. And look, we are coming in strong for 2023. I've got some amazing guests lined up, and the first episode. I have scheduled for 2023 is a banger. It's with a legendary person from the scene we know and love. And my guest co-host is a legend as well. So stay tuned for that. I want to wish everybody happy holidays and a happy new year. Let's keep doing this thing. So I'm going to end the show with a song here. This song always reminds me of Christmas. I remember being 24 years old. I was in a new relationship for the first time in a long time. Broke kid not knowing what the hell he's doing. I drove down to Circuit City. They had like deeply discounted DVDs because they were going out of business. So I was buying a piddling little DVD for the girl I was seeing in hopes that she would be happy and like it, which she did. And I remember buying it and going back out to my car and it was snowing. And I remember sitting in my car in the parking lot in the dark, 
the snow coming down, and this song playing. So this song always reminds me of Christmas. It's So Long Lonesome by Explosions in the Sky. So that's it. I'll be back next week. See everybody then. Thanks everybody for listening. And until next time.